News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It's pretty clear that a lot of people have headed back to the office in the last few weeks. I mean, you can tell just from the amount of traffic out there on the roads. But others who have worked from home during the pandemic are still waiting to find out from their boss, from their employer, what their exact working situation is going to be. That is according to a new poll by Research Co., which we are going to talk about right now with Mario Conseco. Good morning, Mario. Good morning, Simi. Great to be here with you. Well, nice to have you. So tell us, what were you asking people? Well, we asked this question first uh, six months ago, back in March, and at the time, we didn't know if everybody would be vaccinated at this stage. We still had a lot of questions about where the pandemic was heading, and we saw a lot of people who said, I don't know what's going to happen when I go back to the office. Uh, Now in September, when we have a few people who are going back to their usual workplaces, we continue to have a large proportion of PC residents who say, I haven't been told if I'm going back, and I haven't been told if I can stay at home. Oh, do they have a preference? Like, which one do they want to do? Well, that is one of the most uh, striking findings of the survey. Um, As the month had been going on, uh, we have more people who say that they would like to continue to work from home uh, more than they did before the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is something that hasn't really changed over time. This time we have 56% of BC residents who say they are likely to seek a different job if their current company doesn't allow them to work from home as often as they as, as they want to. So we're definitely getting uh, happy with the situation that we have right now working out of our kitchens. I thought that was really striking because I don't think any employer these days can afford to have that many employees saying, uh, I think I'm going to look for another job if you can't accommodate me. Well, uh, this is really crucial for those who are seeking to retain their own employees. And what we see is that it's, it's happening a lot more with the 18 to 34 crowd. You know, they are more likely to be saying, I have my own computer, I can work from home. If I can find somebody who will pay me to do what I'm doing and not have to go to the office, then I would certainly entertain that option, even if it's a company that is not based in my city. So it's troubling in the sense that uh, we saw five or six years ago, the idea of the workplace that was going to be attractive for millennials. You know, you'll have beer on Fridays, or you'll have a yoga instructor on Thursdays. This isn't going to work anymore because people are saying, I'm happy at home. And if you want to continue to help me, you'd better allow me to be here once or twice a week. Yeah, it's a little surprising too, Mario, that so many employers, like knowing what was coming, don't have that plan or haven't really, it sounds like, communicated that plan to employees. Well, that is definitely problematic because we are heading into the final stages of this uh, situation. We have a lot of people who are going back to work, uh, but there's only 45% of employed British Columbians who have been told what is going to happen as far as the return to the office. Only 40% who have been told, okay, we've made some calculations, we will allow you to work from home some of the time. So the goalposts continue to move. I think that is ultimately part of the problem with this pandemic. A lot of people expected everything to be ready and to essentially be able to say to people, this is how you're going back, but it's certainly not looking that way, at least now. Right. So was there a breakdown here in age or according to like whether it was women or men or whatever the case? Well, I think the biggest situation that we have here is a gender gap. Uh, The employee that is uh, aged 55 and over is certainly desperate to get out of the house. They are more likely to be saying, I want to get back to the office. Middle-aged Canadians, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Uh, But when it comes to younger Canadians, millennials, 18 to 34-year-olds, they are more likely to be saying, I would quit my job and look for a different one if they don't let me work from home that often. And they're also more likely to say, I can do this from anywhere I want. You know, we have 47% of them who are saying, let me be able to work from home three or four times a week or five days a week, and I'll just show up to the office for meetings now and then. I bet you it's the virtual staff meetings. Are people tired of the virtual staff meetings, Mario? (laughs) It is starting to happen. You know, when we asked this back in March, the expectation from a lot of these employees was business development, the way we used to do it, meetings the way we used to do them are out. And now we start to see a little bit of a trend. People saying, okay, once this pandemic is a little bit more under control, we'll be able to go back to the boardroom. But it's, again, generational. The 18 to 34-year-old says, I'm fine. I just want to connect from work, and I don't need to wear pants. 
So uh, <laughs> that's so true. Uh, I noticed as well that you asked people about the changes in the type of kind of office life that they now have about virtual staff meetings. Do they want fewer in-person staff meetings? I feel like we now realize that we don't need to have as many meetings as we were having before the pandemic. <laughs> that is absolutely true. I think it's been one of the uh, fortunate side effects in a way of, of being able to work from home. You know, people essentially saying we don't need to spend three hours talking about something trapped in a boardroom. What is fascinating to me looking at the numbers is the change when it comes to gender. Men are more likely to be happy with meetings and taking a long time to get stuff done, whereas women are saying, I just need 10 minutes and I can go back to my day. Right. What about business travel? Well, business travel is an interesting one as well, because um, there's an expectation that we will be traveling less than we did before the COVID-19 pandemic. 37% uh, of employed British Columbians saying, I don't think this is going to come back. Part of this is related to the concept of the vaccine passport. I think, you know, we do see a little bit of movement on some of the other business development tools. uh, But the notion of sending somebody to another office and not knowing what is happening when it comes to caseloads in a specific city, even if it's a city located within Canada, um, is making people a little more uneasy. And there's also less money to spend. That's also part of the problem. Yeah, that's very, very true. Okay, so what it comes down to then, Mario, it sounds like is out of all the people who were working from home during the pandemic, almost half of them still don't have a plan from their employer about what's going to happen moving forward. That is the crucial question at this stage. And it affects a lot of things. You know, you have all of the people who depend on commuters. You have all of the restaurants that offer lunches. You have all of the food carts. You know, this is going to be complicated because employers need to figure out a way to entice people back into the office, to suddenly make the kitchen table not as attractive as it has been during the COVID-19 pandemic. All right, Mario, thanks for your time on that this morning. My pleasure. See me anytime. That's Mario Canseco, President of Research Co., talking about the workplace, been surveying people about this all throughout the pandemic. And I tell you, there's a couple of things in this survey that I think employers and bosses and companies should really be paying attention to. And that is, in particular, there is quite a sizable number of people who say if they are not able to work from home, they will just look for another job. That is something that I think really today in this kind of labor force environment, companies cannot really afford to lose that many people. So almost two thirds of employed British Columbians who've worked from home say they would consider switching to a different job that can be performed from home for a company located in the same area. This is Mornings with Simi. So much to talk about this morning with the help of our Raji Soha, who joins us. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Uh, yesterday was the last day to early vote, so you know I went out and did that. It and? Took a record one minute, I think. <laughs> so you were in and out is what you were saying. Yeah, I was really confused because as I approached, there's no lineup. There's no one in there but some poll workers. And I thought, oh, maybe they're closing early or something. And they said, no, because it's just you right now. So I thought, that's great. Well, Let's that's do nice. this in less than a minute. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what my concern was? So I voted early and I thought, shoot, I hope I feel good about this vote tomorrow, the next day, and up uh, until the FOMO. 20th, because so much is happening uh, with our politicians right now. Raji, and, uh, you have FOMO, don't you? I do a little bit. I have fear of missing out on September 20 when everyone else is voting. And I'm a little bit nervous that the leaders are going to say and do things before then that would make me change my mind for where I placed my vote. See, I'm completely, maybe it's a generational thing, but I am so different. I went and got it done last Friday and I kind of did the, you know, wiping my hands. I was like, done. Okay. Not going to worry about it anymore because it is done. Whatever happens, happens. This is true. And then when I got back to my house along the way, um, I smiled at my neighbors and I told them that I had voted (laughs) and I asked them if they had yet. So uh, I'm also that person, Simi, in your neighborhood, (laughs) walking around with a Ned Flanders goofy smile. I have been that person in the past, so I can totally empathize with that. When my kids were younger, 
I made a big deal out of voting because I wanted them to understand how important this was. So I used to take them with me every single time I voted. I always took my kids with me because they used to love the stickers and the poll workers were always so nice to them. And I love how passionate they are now that they are past voting age and they vote and they make sure that they do. And um, in fact, my daughter said that she was surprised this time that I'd gone to vote without her. She was disappointed that I didn't wait for her, but she was too busy working. And I said, I got to go get this done on Friday morning while I have time. Uh, And so I always felt it was really important to make a a big deal out of that so they could see how much I enjoy doing this. Absolutely. I think for me, it probably had an impact too that my parents always talked about voting um, and how important it is when I was a kid. I'm I'm pretty sure that sunk in pretty deep. And uh, so I've always taken such a joy in it too and felt so much gratitude on, on election day for being Canadian. I'm that person, Simi. Exactly, I know. Well, just we should remind people here that you still have the ability to request a mail-in ballot. And you can do that by 6 o'clock this evening, our time. You can go online to elections.ca and do it. Or you can go to any Elections Canada office and request your mail-in ballot. And if you don't do that by 6 o'clock today, that's it. you got to wait until Election Day on Monday. Are you excited for that? I'm nervous. Oh, interesting. I'm I'm excited. I'm like, let's do this. After, you know, you get that way towards the end of an election campaign where you're like, okay, heard the messages, I've seen the leaders running around, now let's just do this thing and count these ballots and get this done. Yeah, I know every year people that there's an election, people feel like stakes are high. I think right now, some people are losing sight of the fact that we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. We are in the era of extenuating circumstances, and I want a good leader to take us through this. Well, we'll see what happens. Lots to talk about. Uh, We're also talking about working from home uh, this week. Now, Raji, for you, feels like you've always been a part of our team, which we love, Uh, but you've only been with us for a few months now and you've the entire time you have been working from home. How have you found that? Well, you know, I was so excited when I took this position to be in studio with you guys. And when I found out that that wasn't going to be the case, that I was going to be working remotely, uh, I'm not going to lie, I was totally disappointed. I was gutted because I wanted to be in studio with you. And I had only ever recorded radio before, done broadcasting uh, live in studio or else live from a remote, like on location somewhere, bringing breaking news and that kind of thing. So being... uh, at home remote was new to me. And, you know, I missed you guys for all of one day. And then I came to see that it's not TV. It's (laughs) as much as I adore you. And I love our team so much. Our tech producer and our daily producer are just fantastic to work with, but we communicate just as much. And you know what? if not more, by being virtual. And uh, I love it. I love I love working from home. I'm happier in general. I get right. to spend more time following the news, reading stories. And I don't know if you feel this way, Simi, but I feel like as a columnist and then when I have done hosting work in the past too, I felt that the work really requires that you not just like scour for stories and absorb the stories, but that you have time to reflect on them. And when I was, you know, before uh, working in a newsroom physically and running around and chasing and spending time getting ready and doing more meetings and that kind of thing, you feel a little uh, cramped on time, hmm. less time to think about things. Well, you know how I feel about meetings. Uh, so that's, <laughs> I'm a very anti-meeting person. But it's interesting, we're having this conversation this morning about working from home. So you would understand, like, are you surprised then to hear so many employers haven't actually thought about that, haven't communicated that to their employees? Because is this the way of the future? I think that everyone has thought about it. I think that management everywhere is thinking about it. Maybe they haven't communicated it because they're uncertain on which approach they want to take, but they haven't stopped thinking about it. So while employees maybe have had a little bit of a break here and there, um, no, I think uh, bosses Hmm. have been thinking about it. And, you know, what you and uh, Mr. Conseco were talking about earlier on the program today um, and the the stats on who wants to work from home and whatnot, I made me think that, you know, I think bosses do have our backs more than ever. And it took a global pandemic, but I'm glad to see that bosses are now listening to their workers about what they want to do. All right. Thanks for that, Raji. We are going to talk more about that this morning. Let me know. Has your employer communicated to you about whether or not you're going to be able to work from home? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about some of the things that we learned from that press conference yesterday with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. One of the things we learned is that people in BC, some of them anyway, will be getting a third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. It's about 15,000 people, it sounds like, right now, and it is for people who are categorized as severely immunocompromised. So what does that mean? Well, let's talk about these new measures. Joining us is Dr. Horatio Bach, UBC adjunct professor in the Division of infectious diseases. Dr. Bach, thank you being, for being with us. Good morning, my pleasure. So what, what do we categorize as severely immunocompromised? Who is that? Immunocompromised are people that uh, for some reason they have to um, turn down or uh, as much as possible the immune system. The reason is, for example, people that are immunocompromised can be people that they got a transplant of an organ. So at the moment you put an organ in a different person, your body considers that like a foreign uh, a body and start to do what is called rejection. So it's mounting a huge immune system because it's something that doesn't know and wants to attack that. So that's one, one group in the immunocompromised. The second group may be people that are under chemotherapy. Chemotherapy, as you know, is uh, the idea is to restrict the multiplication of cells in your body and in the same time you restrict the growth of your, the tumor of any type of cancer. So uh, we know that blood, for example, is produced every day. And if you restrict these cells, the white cells, for example, that are responsible for the immune system, automatically you are reducing the power to uh, be able to combat another disease that is coming. So these people, they are with treatment cancer, can be immunocompromised because they have autoimmune diseases. Everything is very complicated for these people because they cannot mount a proper immune system in order to defend themselves. Okay, so it is a relatively small group. So is this just the beginning, though, Dr. Bach? Like, do we start with this group and then expand from there? I think so, because the, these people, they, they cannot uh, cope with the, with the disease, or so it's very hard and it will be a lot of complications. So I think that it's very wise to start with this group. Uh, they are more vulnerable. And these people, even if you stop the medicine, the chemotherapy, or the, the drugs they, talk to, they take to repress or reduce this immune reaction, it takes time until you build your power again. So I think it's very wise to start with this um, population. And then uh, we know, you know, it's just for the audience, it's not something rare that we are doing that. If for hepatitis B, we need to get three shots. And the third shot is a booster after six months. So we, we are in the same category. It's not something that we are. We need a third dose. Uh, it's something that happened in order to build your immune system. In this case of people that are severely um, immunocompromised or people working in the health system, they should protect themselves as well because themselves and they're the people they are taking care because right. they can transmit, you know, very easily. You're also talking then about mandating all healthcare workers uh, to have this. Are you surprised, though, that the government has to take that step to say that, that, that they didn't, it wasn't just automatically done? No, because um, not everyone is willing to, uh, to get the vaccine. Some people, they say they don't have time for multiple reasons. They don't want to get the vaccine. And the problem is that we, we have solid evidence around the world that around six months after the second dose, your immune system is not as effective as a month after the second dose. It means that your antibodies start to disappear. And that's a problem. There are people that even with two vaccines and after six months, they start to be reinfected. I agree, and everyone can tell me, yes, but, you know, it's not severe. It's like a regular flu. It, it's okay, but we don't know what is the long-term disability they can cause. And also, in the moment you, you are double vaccinated and you get the virus and you get the disease, you can transmit again. So it's a circle that we need to stop at some point. So um, I think at some point, and we mentioned in the past, we will need to have a booster every year like as we, we do with the flu right. vaccine, basically. Does, yeah. it, does it frustrate you when you do hear people say that, oh, I got it, it was mild, and now I'm fine? Because you just touched on something there that not doesn't get enough discussion, and that is you don't know what's going to happen long-term as a result of getting this. Exactly. There are many people that you can read in the, in the, in the news all the time that after one year, after, you know, even 15 months, uh, you know, after the covid um, they still don't feel okay. They cannot breathe. They cannot run. There's a lot of disability that we don't know. 
And that we will know in, you know, in a few years so that we start to come, oh, we have that, that is the new uh, symptom or syndrome that is starting to appear. We don't know. It's a new vaccine. We don't have experience and that we need to change our decision over time. So now that you feel so that if everybody in healthcare is going to get this, do you, do you think this is going to make a difference in terms of helping out with the numbers? I don't know if it will be a huge impact in the total number of the vaccinated people um, or the disease, because these people are giving, uh, basically, a, they provide, a, you know, a help. So you don't want that these people that are coming every day to a facility, let's say long-term facility, that may bring the virus inside. And all the population in these long-term facilities are very vulnerable. So it's like, you know, you control, and then after a while, another person is coming. Just remind, uh, remember that in this facility, you have a huge amount of workers. There are contractors that are coming to fix stuff. There are volunteers. There are students and the personnel working there. So it's a huge amount of, pe- of people working that I think they need to protect all the residents in these places. So even though we hear this all in the news, then Dr. Bach, that we think, okay, well, I'm not a healthcare worker and I'm not severely immunocompromised. Does that mean that we can stop paying attention to all that? Um, what they, I think that it's a, it's, it's, it's a way to stop in this population. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the rest of the population, and there are people that they oppose to that, and we, we understand as well. It's part of the, our uh, 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 human being. But uh, definitely there are a lot of people that they are arriving to the, to the ICU or, um, you know, emergency, and they they ask for the vaccine because they think, oh, I need a vaccine now and it's too late. Vaccine yeah. needs to be before you are sick, not after or during your disease. And sometimes people, they don't understand. And that's the main point or there are X, Y reasons. You know, I don't want to uh, discuss these reasons, but the uh, vaccine is proven that it's saving lives. That's the most important. That is the most important thing. Dr. Bach, thank you for your time. You are very welcome. You have a great day. You too. Dr. Horatio Bach is a UBC adjunct professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases. He's an expert in vaccines. And that's what he's saying. Like, even if people make that argument that, oh, it's okay, I got COVID and it was really mild, now I'm fine. You don't know what the long-term effects are. And still, the best way to protect yourself is getting those vaccines. So here in BC, about 15,000 people will be in this group initially of getting the third dose. And then we'll see how it goes from there. This is Mornings with Simi. When is an accidental overdose not an accident? Is it when someone sold them the drugs that were cut with too much fentanyl? That's the question our next guest has been asking. She's the mom of Logan Williams, the teenage actor best known for the TV series The Flash. Now, he died of an accidental overdose or death from fentanyl. And now she is lobbying and saying, you know what, things need to change. Marlies Williams joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How do you think things need to change? Would it help for us to no longer use those terms, accidental overdose? Exactly. That term just really makes my blood boil. Um, It should be called fentanyl poisoning. Overdose is when you take too much of something. So none of these deaths occur from taking too much of something. It occurs from having a contaminated source. So in in addition, I also think it it lends to the stigma. When you read accidental overdose, the general public thinks, oh, well, you know, they did it to themselves. But when we start hearing fentanyl poisoning, it, it really alerts the public to say, what's going on here? And um, we stop blaming the addict and going, well, wh- wh- how's this poison getting into the in- into the drugs? So I think it could change um, really a, a whole um, outlook on what, instead of blaming the addict, we could perhaps blame the dealer because the dealer is no longer dealing drugs. They are dealing death. Marlies, can you tell us what happened to Logan? Oh, well, that's a... Um, that's a, that's a complex, um, you know, ultimately, um, Logan was for a short time in the ministry's care. And um, unfortunately, the ministry, you know, this was a high risk, vulnerable youth, and there is procedures and, and protocols in place to um, keep children like that and Logan safe. And those were not adhered to, which ultimately led to the death of, of my only child. 
And you believe that was a result of fentanyl poisoning? It, we all know it was fentanyl poisoning. However, you know, he was in a group home facility at the time, and they have procedures and protocols in place, and none of them were, were adhered to, which, uh, you know, unfortunately, because of that, uh, uh, Logan died alone in in his bed and, you know, laid there for six hours until he was found. He was supposed to have 24-hour supervision. You wanted a coroner's inquest into this, didn't you? Yes. I, I Well, I did want a coroner's inquest, and I wanted that to uncover the truth behind Logan's death. I was not getting any answers from MCFD. And um, in addition, an, an inquest would make recommendations to MCFD, so perhaps it could help other children in the future. And um, many people actually don't understand that an inquest is different than a report. An inquest is somewhat of a trial that has witnesses and, and are heard before a judge, not to make a ruling and or cite blame, but as mentioned before, to make recommendations to prevent other deaths occurring in this manner. And, and we know this is such a huge problem in BC. It is a public health emergency. And do you think that if we change the way we talk about it and the words that we use, it would maybe get more attention and people, it would, I don't know, provide a greater sense of urgency in dealing with it? Well, it would, I mean, it's such a complex issue. As you know, you've done so many stories on this. Um, but we need to start somewhere. And I always correct everyone. You know, I hear from healthcare professionals to the corner saying accidental overdose. I mean, why do they call it, um, it uh, alcohol poisoning? That's consuming too much alcohol. But yet they call it accidental overdose when, it, when the source has actually been contaminated. So it, it doesn't make sense to me. I think we do need to change the terminology. And it is such a huge epidemic and it needs to be have the same, um, this, the, the same uh, attention that um, COVID has gotten. You know, I don't think people really know, but uh, the, 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 it's killing more yeah. people. It's the number one death in, from 19. 19- 240 is drug toxicity. Marlies, you want to, like, you say, believe that changing the law would help here too? You would like to see police, what, go after the drug dealers in a case like this? Well, yeah, I was talking to the Burnaby police sergeant a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned to me, even if they did catch Logan's dealer, to be specific, he still would not be, and, and they could actually, you know, prove it. We don't have um, a drug-induced homicide law in British Columbia or in Canada, I believe. And so he, the, the, the dealer would only get a drug, drug charge, a drug a dealing charge, I should say. And so with that, the, you know, it's just a revolving door. As you know, you interview, it, it, you know, there, and that is a huge problem. We really need to send a message that this is not okay. If you're going to deal contaminated drugs that result in death, then you need to be held accountable. Well, so Marlies, what's the next step for you then? Where do you take this? Well, I mean, I'm just still over recovering from receiving the, the coroner's report. You know, I didn't know it would be released. Well, I knew it would be released to the public, but they were supposed to send it to me first. And there was um, in there, they said there was an oversight and they didn't send it to me. And so I got a call from um, an American reporter asking me what I think of if to comment on on the story of the coroner's mm. report, and I had no clue, so I was kind of shocked. So I'm still reviewing, you know, the specifics in right. Logan's case, but long term, you know, I want to be a voice for for others and really help um, navigate improvement and navigate some ways that we can really find change because we have to have immediate change, and it has to be from a, from right. every angle, and it has to be now before we lose, you know, next week will be another death. Next, it's like another young child, and yeah. it's just, it, it can't keep happening. Parents are so worried about COVID, and I understand that, but really, parents of teenagers should be worried about fentanyl. Marlies, thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate that. Thank you for the opportunity. Marlies Williams is a mother of Logan Williams. And some, so many interesting ideas in there. Like, should we stop talking about words like accidental overdose? Should we use words like fentanyl poisoning instead? If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Just a few months ago, we were all collectively horrified by the revealing of unmarked burial sites across the country where institutions mandated to assimilate Indigenous youth had once stood. I mean, it's all we were thinking about. It's all we were talking about. And then a federal election came along, and many thought, well, of course this discussion will continue. But it hasn't. It hasn't been as prominent a topic during the campaign. And joining us now to discuss that is Kupke Razan Kazimir, chief of the Tekemloop Shuepmuk Nation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for the invitation. Are you disappointed or did you think that reconciliation would be a bigger topic during the campaign? You know, truly, I really thought that reconciliation would have been a bigger discussion right across the board, you know, with all the parties. And, you know, to me, especially with, you know, um, you know, the our findings within our community and the findings right across Turtle Island, you know, there's so much meaningful change that we all need to, you know, work towards. And, um, you know, I just think there should have been more dialogue. Yeah, it did feel like it was different this time, didn't it? Like, I know that Canadians are paying attention. Why do you think politicians haven't been paying attention? I don't know. I, I don't get it because, like, honestly, it is something that, you know, would be truly meaningful, especially when it comes to reconciliation. You know, I know that, you know, whichever party is going to be, um, you know, winning in the election, we need to work together and address these matters. And these are truly impactful to, you know, the core of each and every single one of our hearts. And, you know, we think that it is truly urgent that, you know, that the government take that leadership to ensure that the appropriate and the comprehensive steps are put in place to establish a proper response and a legal framework Um, governing the protection and the investigation of the unmarked uh, mass burial sites that have been discovered. And as of now and into the future, at all the former Indian residential schools, you know, within Canada. And, you know, we think that it's truly important that it also be co-developed with First Nations. So we know that those collaborative discussions need to continue and have to take place. And we want to work towards, you know, those steps and that path forward. So what has been your impression, though, about the way in which Indigenous issues have been addressed during this election campaign? So my impressions of how the Indigenous issues have been addressed, well, I definitely do see a lot of, um, you know, headlines, but, you know, not a whole lot of discussions around those, um, you know, real areas that need to be addressed. What would you like to see the candidates saying? What, what would you like to see them doing? Well, um, I definitely say that, you know, Indigenous people have been very clear about, you know, what urgent actions are needed and that, you know, we want. And so, you know, looking at the prioritization and implementation of the calls to action of the truth and reconciliation, extremely important. The calls to justice of the National Inquiry into the missing and murdered Indigenous women and also the work of addressing the many inequities in treatment of Indigenous peoples in public policy. We also know that looking even at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and that that Canada racially discriminates against First Nations youth and their families, and definitively, you know, also ending the boil water advisories and ensuring that all Indigenous communities have access to real, safe, clean water. We also know that inequitable um, or equitable access to health care and mental health and addiction support is so crucial, especially, you know, when we're looking at everything that we've been facing with the pandemic, the fires, um, the um, findings within the residential schools and, you know, looking at all those impacts that have been in there and um, also, you know, looking at different programs, you know, that need to um, and continue to exist today that we need to really work towards those healing paths of journey moving forward. What has the last few months, few months been like for you since this whole story broke, uh, particularly in your nation? What has the response been like? What has the community support been like? The community support has been absolutely amazing. You know, when we lose one in our community, our community comes together. We have had, you know, the preliminary findings of 215. We had 
not only our, our community come together, we had our nation come together. We had the nation like the, and the world come together to, to mourn with us, support us, and to walk together in unity. And, you know, ensuring that, you know, every single child matters and that, you know, together we're going to walk in solidarity. We all need to do that. Is there time, do you think, still in this campaign to bring these issues up and talk about them? Well, this is the final week. There is, I always say there's always hope. And I know that, you know, regardless of which party comes to the table, we want to work with them. It's so important and it's so crucial. And we also know that, um, you know, if there's opportunities for the um, the the political parties to meet with First Nations and First Nation groups, you know, whether it be the BCAFN or the AFN, take those opportunities. Reach out to First Nation communities. Really know what issues we're facing and that we want to work and continue to work with and, you know, advance together. Melissa, thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate that talk. Thank you. That is Kupke Rosanne Casimir, Chief of the Tekemlup Shawetmuk First Nation, talking about Indigenous issues in the federal election campaign. It was just a few months ago where that was all we were all talking about was the discovery of these unmarked burial sites in Canada's history and our place in that and changing things. And yet when the federal election campaign came along, there hasn't been that same level of discussion and, and, you know, that really kind of passionate intervention from politicians the way we were seeing just a few months ago. There is a week left, as we heard there. Will they, will there be more of an addressing of Indigenous issues? We'll have to wait and see on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Hi, is this Connie Thompson from Williams Lake, B.C.? Yes, Connie, we have some incredibly exciting news for you. You are the winner of our 2021 Peony Prize Home Grand Prize. Oh, we all live for that phone call, don't we? Every year we dream about it. Well, it is now time for our Where We Live series. And really, what better event to highlight our province than the annual Peony Prize Home Lottery Draw? This was the 87th year of the Prize Home Lottery. And this year's winner, as you just heard there, is Williams Lake resident Connie Thompson. And she's with us now. Connie, congratulations. Thank you. Have Thank you, you so much. Have you even recovered at this point, or have you just been drinking all night? Uh, no, I I laid there trying to sleep all night. I was awake, and I was like, oh, my God, I, I just can't sleep. <laughs> Vibrating. <laughs> <laughs> have you been, like, rearranging the furniture in each room? Uh, no, I've been just thinking, what am I going to do with all this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about, do you always buy a ticket? Tell me about your story and the p e Prize Home. Um, I took my kids to the PME uh, years ago, and then um, we decided after we had been at the PME, I thought, what a great, great thing that they put on. And so I started buying tickets. And for some reason, I always uh, look for the winner after the draw date. But this year is so, it's surreal. Uh, I sat down at the evening news, and I'm like, they're going to draw the tickets. And I, I pulled it up on my email, and they called out the number, and I was like, I, I just won. My daughter, she says, that's no voice of somebody that's won. And, well, I kind of said it in the curse of words. <laughs> I did win. I won. And I just so, went nuts from there. <laughs> so, like, did you doubt it? When you looked at it first, you thought, no, no, that, that can't be right. I, 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 when he said it, I'm like, oh, that's my number. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I'm so like, I just love this because everybody, I think Connie thinks I want that feeling. What is that feeling like? I I haven't come down yet. I'm still vibrating. I know it it feels unreal. Like it it just doesn't seem like it's happening to me yet. (laughs) (laughs) Now, normally you come down for the peony every year, don't you? Uh, we have come down, and uh, but because of COVID, we haven't come down. And, uh, yeah, we've missed for the last couple of years. Okay, so for sure, though, you still wanted to buy a ticket for the P&E Prize Home. Is that it? Yes, I want to support it. Absolutely. 
So did you look at the house first? Did you, does it even matter what the house looks like? Or did you just think, no, I'm buying a ticket? I'm just buying a ticket. Yeah, wow. I bought a, a prize home ticket and the 50-50 draw. And I was thinking, okay, well, if I win, I win. If I don't, well, try again next year. <laughs> okay, so had you looked at the pictures of the house? Like, do you, now you obviously have, but before, did you? Yeah, I did the, the virtual tour. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. It is pretty. I know. It's so beautiful, right? It's always just so beautiful. But you live in Williams Lake, Connie. What are you going to do with this house? Are you moving into it? I, I, my husband and I are pretty, uh, we're hillbilly. <laughs> and I, I don't know if we will move into it, but we definitely want to tour around in it. And uh, yeah. I'll bet your kids are making plans. I bet your kids are like, mom, you know what? We'll go, to, we'll go stay in it for a while. And that way you can still come and stay in there. Um, no, my daughter, uh, she works at a mill. She drives forklift and she's like, mom, I just found a job that I really love. She goes, you're not going to leave here, are you? And I'm like, we have no idea what we're doing yet. You go to work and we'll, we'll figure this out. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Now I know Connie that when my family members have bought tickets, they buy like a lot of tickets. How many tickets did you buy for this thing? I bought a one pack of 15 on the prize home and a five pack on the fifty fifty. Okay, so you did all right. You didn't go crazy. You, is that what you always buy? Uh, yep. I don't like to go overboard because I know what's the point, right? It only takes one ticket, right? That's so true. <laughs> well, for you, it sure did. Okay, so Connie, here's the big question then. Now, I always wonder this about lottery winners because you hear about this happening. Are you still going to buy tickets for the lottery? Are you still going to buy tickets for the PE prize home? Or are you like done? Oh no, I'm going to keep buying for sure. So this is it. You're like, I'm just, you don't feel like you've used up your luck. I'm, you're going to keep going. Well, my kids still have to win it. (laughs) (laughs) So when do you get to go get your first look at this house? Have they told you? Uh, They were supposed to get a hold of me today and we're supposed to make arrangements to go down there. Well, Connie, you know what? Congratulations. I love it. It sounds like it went to the absolutely right person this year. So job well done. Thank you so much. Thank you. And good luck on the house. That is Connie Thompson. She is from Williams Lake, and she is the lucky winner of the PE Prize Home. Can you just can't even imagine getting that call? Like watching them draw that on the news hour last night and then realizing I'm about to get a phone call because that is my winning ticket. Phenomenal, right? That is just a dream come true for so many British Columbians. And honest, honestly, Connie, thank you as well. She made a point of supporting the PE by buying a ticket for the 50-50 and the PE prize home, even though she, you know, because of COVID couldn't come down this year and actually attend the PE. And that's just one of that's just kind of illustrates to you that tie that so many people have with that great beastie tradition of going to the PE every year. So congratulations to her. And I love the fact that she's going to just keep on buying those lottery tickets because you know what? This is why I'll never win. I have that feeling like, I don't know, I'm, I've been pretty lucky. I, I probably shouldn't buy a lottery ticket already. And then when you win, so you always hear about people who keep winning afterwards, right? They win a second time. So good on her for that. And Connie is the winner of the PE Prize Home this year. Can't wait for her to do that tour there for sure. I'd love to see that. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there is so much internet use all over the world that it's taking more and more satellites, like communication satellites in space to help achieve that kind of coverage. The number is actually increasing beyond what scientists ever predicted, and it's interfering with their work. We are going to find out how our contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. I don't know about you, but when I look at the night sky these days, I'm going, hey, I'm seeing more shooting stars than ever. They are not shooting stars. (laughs) That's true, actually. You're right. What we're actually seeing often is communication satellites. Uh, Those are the ones put up there to help us get our internet. And new research shows us that the planned launch over the next few years is expected to have a devastating effect on the research of space. So this has already been happening uh, because we've had internet for a long while now, but it's the cumulative light pollution that we're experiencing now that's a problem. And what's of concern here 
you know, we can't observe space as well. And scientists also can't put things into Earth's orbit because of all the interference from the satellites. And uh, Dr. Aaron Boley, he's the Canada Research Chair in Planetary Astronomy at UBC. He was part of the research team that came up with all of this. And here he is talking about it. If you have an explosion in space, uh, debris will be formed as a result of that explosion. And so you have all these small pieces of material that are now also in orbit. And even a small few millimeter size piece of metal striking another satellite at orbital speeds could cause uh, significant damage to the satellite and spur additional fragmentation. And so what happens is if you have one, say, explosion, maybe it's an accident, maybe there's a collision, it will produce all these essentially bullets and those can strike other satellites and create even more. And so you get this cascading effect in which now you might not be able to operate in certain regions of the orbital space. Roger, I feel like I've seen this movie. Like, you know, I feel this, this was a movie. Was this not the movie Gravity? Was this not something that, like a movie where this happened? <laughs> Probably. Was this an issue in gravity? This effect of interference, it's, it's a real issue, Simi. Uh, from all the light pollution that we are getting now from these satellites, this could actually limit humanity's ability to develop Earth orbits or to even observe the cosmos. And I asked why there isn't a scientific body to intervene. Well, it turns out the light pollution from satellites hasn't been that big of an issue until now. Maybe that's why I think I keep seeing shooting stars. There's just way more of them. They're brighter. And now the numbers are large enough that they have to worry about these issues along with general what they call space traffic management. There's just so much stuff out there. So apparently scientists used to use uh, machine learning to remove some of the streaks and the light trains that they would get in the images. But that no longer works as effectively because there's so much light pollution and they're wasting a lot of time capturing these images and they have to discard them. So here's Dr. Aaron Boley on that. If we start throwing away many of our images because the, the data are unusable or we are missing rare events because we have streaks that are just um, inundating the images, uh, then there's a loss of scientific discovery from the, the loss of opportunity. And then it just takes more time to do things, which means the telescopes, the major facilities that are already uh, oversubscribed become even more so. But this sounds so this really tough. Yeah, and it isn't just about being out on your patio at night and looking up and saying, oh, what a pretty sky of stars, although I believe that's deeply important too. Uh, research is showing that, you know, to keep track of what is coming towards our Earth is actually really important, and that is becoming obfuscated. Here's Dr. Boley again. So planetary defense is a branch of astronomy that looks for near near-Earth objects, uh, such as asteroids, so that we could have su sufficient warning in case there is one of these asteroids on an Earth impact trajectory. And what we need there is time. We need lots of time. And so eventually, we might find a given asteroid that is on an Earth impact trajectory. But if we've pushed that back by a week because of all the constellations that are out there, um, then that could have major ramifications for disaster management. So, Simi, this is the part where I think we're thinking about movies. Yes. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> imagining uh, asteroids coming towards our planet and not being able to be adequately warned of them because we can't study the sky is what's happening here. Um, you know, the fact that we can't see the sky is here, you know, in Vancouver even, is is very real for some people who are, are already paying close attention to that. Um, in Delta, for example, you can see the sky, as it turns out, way better than in downtown Vancouver. Here's Dr. Boley again. Because so many people have already lost the night sky and they don't even realize it. For many of us who are living in cities, the city light pollution is already so bad that they don't notice the satellite light pollution. But as soon as you go out into a dark sky and you look up and you see the wonders of the cosmos, and then you you start seeing things just streaking across and you, you start to get this weird sense where you don't know what's moving and what's fixed. And it's, it's very odd. It is a loss. That is so true when you think about it. 
Uh, and I know, Vaji, you often go to the big island of Hawaii. I vacation yes. there as well. And that's the first thing I thought of when you were talking about this in that they make a very specific point of keeping light pollution down on the big island. It's dark there for a reason. Yeah, well, they have one of the world's biggest uh, observatories to view the night sky. And boy, can you see the stars that much better because they keep it so dark. It also feels really dangerous to drive around oh, on the highways yes. there and when you're out in the rural areas because it's so dark. But it is magnificent because of how well you can see the sky. And living in Vancouver, I don't know the last time that in the middle of the night I got up and looked outside and it was actually truly dark because uh, our skies are just so polluted now with light. I can see why Delta, too, I guess because of Burns Bog, why that would be a better place because you wouldn't have as much light pollution. Yeah, so hopefully, I mean, we turn this around in general and that there will be some self-regulation, there will be bodies working together. It sounds like they are now starting to do that. You know, uh, governments working with these communication satellite makers to come up with a solution so that we don't totally lose our night sky um, to uh, internet, basically. Yeah, that's exactly it. And there's no rules and regulations, right, about satellites going up into space? Is, is it anywhere you can find find a spot? Go ahead and do it? it. It has been. And this is just in part because, I mean, that's a natural part of technological development is that you can't foresee what problems you might have down the line when communications become that much more popular. So a little bit of a new problem uh, that they're having to deal with. Okay, fascinating stuff. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal talking about the night sky and so many satellites up there because of increasing internet use. Okay, now we've talked about all sorts of great stuff this morning. How about we give something away right now? Yeah, that's it right there. That is your cue to call. What do we have for you? We have a 10-pack of screening vouchers to the Vancouver International Film Festival. It is happening October 1st to the 11th. And what can you see? Well, you can see everything. They've got comedies. They've got action movies. They've got dramas. They've got great documentaries, as they always do. And we are going to help you check them out by helping you to win this 10-pack of screening vouchers. So if you would like to go, all you have to do is give us a call right now at 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. This is for a 10-pack of screening vouchers to the Vancouver International Film Festival. Can you even imagine having I mean, you don't even have to decide which movie to go see. You could see so many of them if you win this prize. It's happening October 1st to the 11th, so give us a call now, 604-280-9898, and we'll tell you who won when we come back. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.